Hello, and welcome to Across the States. I'm your host, Hunter Hamberlin, with the American City County Exchange. Thank you for joining us for our third installment of Smart Cities with Jonathan Hanschild, the Director of the Communications and Technology Task Force. Jonathan, it is always a pleasure to have you on. A pleasure to be on. Thanks for inviting me. Jonathan, you talked about urban mobility and how we should talk about it on this podcast. So, you know, when we talk about the future of urban mobility, what do we actually mean? Well, let's define a couple terms. Uh, Since I'm a lawyer, I like to do things like that. (laughs) Urban mobility in general just means how people get around in a city or an urban setting. I mean, it can apply to rural areas too, but urban mobility seems to have greater talking points. I mean, when you're in a rural area, what do you do? You get in your truck or you get in your SUV, maybe your uh, car, the uh, the weather is right, and you drive to where you need to go. I mean, it's as simple as that. Cities, there's often more complex transportation or mobility, hurdles, barriers, things to consider, factors, whatever term you want to apply there. So when you're talking about an urban setting, you can add in cars, you can add in public transportation, you can add in walking, parking light rail, you know, any of the above. So when we talk urban mobility, we're talking about basically how people get from point A to point B. Often that's home to work or work to home. So for our listeners, and I think we can both infer, but why is it so important? Yeah. So it's important if you can't get from point A to point B, if there's no urban mobility, you can't get to work. You can't earn a living. You can't get your kids to school. You can't get your kids to daycare or to whoever's watching them, the grandparents, close relatives. So urban mobility is critical for ensuring that people have the ability to work, to earn a living. And especially for, you know, poorer communities, it's essential so that they can earn the living and so they can have that, what we like to refer to as upward social mobility, basically so that they can move from the disadvantaged status to hopefully middle class or even beyond. And when we're talking about the future of urban mobility, we have the conditions that are present now that everyone's familiar with. Well, the future is just that. What's it look like, so to speak, tomorrow? What's it look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? So you talked about the future and you mentioned barriers briefly, but can you kind of, you know, elaborate on what the barriers are to urban mobility currently? Yes, I mean, you have several different barriers to urban mobility. The first is probably just that it was designed often back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, maybe even 70s. And of course, now we're in the information digital age. We have a lot of analog systems. So buses run on a relatively rigid schedule, or at least they're supposed to. You know, buses break down, traffic jams happen. (laughs) So they're supposed to run on a relatively rigid schedule. Light rail, again, supposed to run on something of a schedule. You know, here in D.C., you have the metro, the, the light rail system. During rush hour, it's supposed to every, run every four to six minutes. You know, not during rush hour, you can wait. 10 to 15. 10, 15 I know from experience. 10, 15, <laughs> 20 minutes. Yeah. And even then, you know, it shuts down after a certain time. So you, you have the problem of if you're a working class and you're working two jobs, And you depend on public transportation, but yet your second job ends after public transportation shuts down. How are you going to get home? The same question, you know, we could ask after a Nats game or anything, you know, being (laughs) in D.C. Because I think, 
you know, after Nats games usually end, I think usually there's maybe like one or two more trains that go, you know, before the rail is pretty much done for the night. And to be honest, I used to be an Uber driver. And whenever there was a Nats game, I would avoid the area like the plague. Yeah. I hated going there. It was pandemonium trying to figure out who your passenger was, where you're supposed to pick them up. But I could be at the complete opposite end of D.C. I could be in far, far northwest D.C. And I'd still get a call to go down to, yeah. <laughs> to the Nats game. And, and that's, if you will, an emerging, a new area of urban mobility. Before Uber and Lyft, you'd either have to walk to public transportation and hope that it's still open, or you'd have to call a taxi. Those were your options. Or hope that you knew someone close enough that you could, you know, spend the night. So, um, like, how do we promote innovation and competition so that we don't have to just wait on a taxi, that we have more options open to us? Yeah, so I think... One of the things you have to realize, and that one of the barriers I was going to get to that we learned from Uber and Lyft is the kind of like the power and the sway that incumbents have. We didn't really realize how powerful the taxi interests were until Uber and Lyft came to disrupt them and they started raising a huge stink about it. And we have to look at what the the future entails that we know of right now. And why I say we know right now, 10 years ago, no one would have thought of the idea of Uber or Lyft. So we didn't know that option existed. So we have to consider that there are, to use a Rumsfeld statement, there are unknown unknowns. But what we know now, to make sure that cities have an environment that is conducive to innovating and the future of urban mobility is to recognize that incumbent interests are going to fight it and to kind of resist that. Because one of the things that we've seen like with Uber and Lyft is taxis have gotten better. They're more customer focused. The cars are getting better. The drivers are getting better. So competition raises all boats. So ensure that a city or an urban setting, that the regulatory environment is such that it is permissive to new and emerging technologies. So basically what you're saying is we don't need to artificially restrict supply. Correct. We do not need to artificially restrict supply. We don't need to artificially restrict the technologies that are used. So let's take another example of the future of urban mobility. Even five years ago, we wouldn't have thought of the idea of scooters. You know, the nice little things that are often outside businesses or, or hotels oh, yeah. that you can rent. I take one two to four times a week. <laughs> when I'm in school in person, I'm taking them relatively frequent too. Yep. Let's look at the use case of scooters. It's a situation where often the distance is a little too far to walk, but it's not long enough for public transportation. So it's, you know, between metro stations here in D.C. or something like that. So it's more conducive to use a scooter. Well, what's happened here in Virginia and in D.C.? Well, both localities have decided we don't want as many scooters on the streets as there are. We like to refer to it as nimbyism, which for those not familiar with that term, that means not in my backyard. (laughs) (laughs) So you have a lot of people who think that who look at the scooters, they see them on the side of the street, they think they're ugly and they don't want them in their backyard. But what they fail to recognize is that people rely on them to get from point A to point B, or or in some cases, point A.1 to A.2. (laughs) And that by restricting the number of scooters or restricting the number of companies that can provide the service, the localities are artificially increasing the cost and restricting the innovation within the circle. So you can't come up with a new scooter idea. 
there's not the motivation for companies to continually innovate when they're one of three, four, five companies that can operate on the side versus 10, 15, 20. Okay, so um, it's not smart to limit the amount of transportation options. Correct. Because it'll sort itself out, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah, and and think about it. You know, cities, like they tried. Cities tried to kick Uber and Lyft out. Well, that would leave you with taxis, and it would leave you with the smoke-filled, long-route, you know, old car that may break down versus what you have now. So again, competition lifts all boats. Absolutely. So what does urban mobility look like in 20 to 30 years? Now, this is the exciting part. First of all, the sky's the limit. But we can kind of see where things are going. You have the emergence of autonomous vehicles. Yeah, they're still largely in the testing phase, but you know, Uber, Waymo, they're starting to take passengers. So some of the future has autonomous vehicles. You have electric vehicles. Those are going to be the future. You know, electric vehicles right now may not be good for long-haul transportation, but they may be excellent for urban mobility. They may be excellent if your commute is, you know, 20 miles or less. So you, you have connected public transportation. So, you know, again, going back to that whole, there are rigid schedule, they still may be a schedule, but if someone has an app in Columbus, Ohio is a great example of this, where the city transit has an app and you can get updates on when your bus or whatever is going to arrive if there's a delay. So you can better schedule your own time. Ultimately, the future of urban mobility is helping people get from point A to point B the way they want, when they want. Again, going back to what it is now, you often have rigid schedules. 20 to 30 years from now, it may be a combination of Uber and Lyft and public transportation and micro-mobility to get from point A to point B when you want to, rather than that, that rigid schedule. So it frees up time. You know, Maybe you're a little more flexible on when you get the kids to school or from school or to the daycare or from the daycare. It allows the worker to have greater flexibility with their own schedule and to maximize the use of their time. So which cities are providing you know, their citizens with that flexibility right now? I know you mentioned Columbus. Can you kind of dive in a little bit more in that city and what they're doing? Yeah, so Columbus actually won the Department of Transportation Smart Cities competition, and they had a couple different transportation options. And we also see some of these transportation options in cities like San Diego and Littleton, Colorado. You see a lot of cities have one aspect or a couple aspects, and we'll dive into a couple of those. As mentioned with Columbus, they have the connection of, through the smartphone app, of public transportation. But other things that we're seeing is preparing the transportation grid for connectivity. So when we're talking smart cities, again, we've talked before about 5G, small cell, and just making sure they're connected. And so like San Diego's making sure it's connected so that it can help relieve traffic congestion. Now, ostensibly, they're doing it to combat climate change, but two things are going to happen. You are going to reduce the amount of emissions in a city by making sure that there's less traffic. And that's number one. And number two, you're going to make the commute a lot more convenient for people, helping them get from point A to point B faster, which saves them time. You also see, I can't remember if it's Columbus, but you're seeing some cities that have parking apps that tell you where there's parking available. Helps you figure out where to park faster if you don't have a lease. Saves you time. And something, you know, that we're going to have to, that cities are going to have to consider in 20 to 30 years. If you see the explosion of autonomous vehicles, well, where are people going to park? Because rather than 
taking their car and parking it in the garage or park it on the street. They're just going to send it back home and then have it pick them up when they're ready to go home. There's going to have to be some reimagination of what to do with the parking. And there's just a whole lot of, of different options. Again, you have ensuring micromobility. You have obviously bike shares along with the micromobility, making sure the transportation grid is smarter, telling people where to park, a lot of different options of what it's going to look like in 20 to 30 years. A lot of good examples, like I said, San Diego, Littleton, Columbus. So do all cities, are they going to have the same blueprint or is each city going to have to approach this in a different way? Each city's, and that's a great question, each city's going to have to approach it in a different way. What's good for San Francisco and New York and Chicago may not be good for Denver or Columbus or Pittsburgh. The geographies are different. The public is different. And of course, the needs of the city are different. If you're looking at somewhere like uh, St. Louis, yeah, it's a fairly sprawling urban metro area. Compare that to something like Pittsburgh, you know, my hometown. Well, one's relatively flat and has one river. The other one has a ton of hills and three of them and a lot more bridges and the needs are going to be different. And again, you look at something like Columbus, their public transportation system principally relies on buses versus a city like D.C. or Chicago or San Francisco that do have buses and have extensive bus networks, but they also have extensive light rail systems. So a one-size-fits-all approach isn't going to work, but cities can learn best practices from each other. So all cities are going to have some things in common. The need for parking <laughs> is one. Traffic jams, another. The ways people communicate with the city is another. So you can still learn best practices, but a one-size-fits-all is not going to work. Here you had it, the future of urban mobility. You heard it here with Jonathan Hanschild and Hunter Hamberlin. That's all the time we have today, folks. Thank you for coming on, Jonathan. My pleasure. Anytime. If you would like to know more about the American City County Exchange, feel free to reach out to me, Hunter Hamberlin, at hhamberlin at alec.org. Thanks for listening. You'll hear us next time. Thank you for listening to Across the States, the leading state-focused policy podcast presented by the American Legislative Exchange Council, the premier free market organization of and for legislators. To learn more about our work or to make a tax-deductible donation, visit alec.org. Tell us what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Alec States. The views and opinions expressed on Across the States are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the American Legislative Exchange Council. 